Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. Good Reading is a monthly magazine dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. I eat people, I say. The psychiatrist doesn't blink. Tell me about that. Her office is plain, just two low chairs facing each other, a box of Kleenex perched on a coffee table in between. There's a bookcase, but the shelves are bare. For no reason I can fathom, the only book in the room, a weathered copy of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, 5th edition, is on the carpet, next to the empty bookcase. The chairs are the squishy kind you sink way down into. The room is structured to protect the shrink. If I became violent, I'd have to fight my way out of this chair and then go around or over the table. Plenty of time for her to reach into her open handbag, where there's a tube marked lipstick next to her iPhone. Real lipstick doesn't have the word lipstick printed on it, and she's not wearing any. I assume the tube is actually a taser. Not that I'm much of a threat. A starving, one-armed malcontent. There ain't much more to say, I tell her. A slight smile. I find that hard to believe, Timothy. Hello, and welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Jack Heath is the author of 40 books for children and adults. Hangman was the first crime thriller in the Timothy Blake series, followed by Hunter and then Hideout. But today I'm talking to Jack Heath about his latest book in the Timothy Blake series, Headcase. Jack Heath, welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Now, Jack, you're very well known for fast-paced action adventures for young readers, but with the publication of Hangman in 2018, you created a character in Timothy Blake, so far removed from those early books that something must have prompted that leap, especially for a vegetarian. What was it? <laughs> the Hangman, Timothy Blake, is in fact a cannibal. So yes, people people tend not to believe me when I tell them that I'm a vegetarian, but I wasn't when I started writing the character. It, uh, I, I feel like he might have turned me into one in a funny sort of way. But I've noticed that um, when you go to writers' festivals and hang out in the green room for a bit, the children's authors are often the ones swearing the most and telling the dirtiest jokes and things like that. I think when you write for children, a backlog of inappropriate things just kind of builds up in your brain and they have to spill out somewhere. So the result of that was when I eventually started writing for adults, it was always fated to be the um, the craziest, wildest, most disturbing, off-putting, offensive sort of character that you could imagine. So my children's career led me to write the kind of thing that I write for adults. Uh, it's interesting that you've got this, uh, this store of inappropriate moments. And I think a lot of them have found their way into this book. And that's what we're going to talk about. But before we talk about this book in particular, let's talk about the man, Timothy Hangman Blake. I'm not sure if I like Timothy Blake or not. Funnily enough, I, I don't dislike him, but I definitely don't want to meet him. He describes himself as a scavenger, though he has a rather bizarre deal with the authorities that satisfies his cannibalistic needs, though he's always hungry for more. What's the deal? 
So in uh, book one, Hangman, the deal is that he's a, a missing persons investigator. So as you say, he's a very unpleasant person, but he's also brilliant. So he's really good at solving crimes. So the deal is he investigates missing persons cases. And if he manages to find the person alive in time, um, then he is given the body of a uh, of a freshly executed death row inmate. This all takes place in Houston, Texas, where death row inmates are plentiful. So it's this kind of gruesome devil's bargain that the authorities have made with him uh, in order to get cases solved on the cheap. Um, and as you can imagine, that deal goes sideways pretty quickly. Now, there's an obvious resemblance to Hannibal Lecter too, but Timothy Blake is different. He's a sociopath, psychopath. I don't, don't know which one, but I even found myself sympathetic towards him at times an anti-hero perhaps how do you make a psychopath heroic yeah that was kind of the reason that the book existed was because i wanted to challenge myself in that way i i had learned over the course of my career writing children's books that there were various ways to make a character likable or empathetic and i just found myself wondering how far can i push it like what how repulsive a person can I make and still get the reader um, to cheer him on? So there's a few different things you can do. One is that unlike, um, I mean, I don't give Timothy Blake a, a diagnosis, whether it comes to psychopaths or so sociopaths or whatever, but he he does certainly feel guilt and shame about the terrible things that he does. And he is enormously skilled in various ways, which I think readers are more likely to, to forgive a character for their crimes if they... Um, if they are also demonstrably, you know, capable in one way or another. I think it's also important to to show the way he became the way he is. So you can kind of get the reader thinking that if they had been through what he had been through, they might have turned out the same way. Um, but I also knew that, as you say, the obvious comparison is Hannibal Lecter. He's the other cannibal who works for the FBI. So I knew that I needed to differentiate um, Blake from Hannibal as much as possible. So uh, Hannibal is very high society. I forget if he actually wears a monocle, but certainly he goes to the opera and has, you know, the governor over for dinner and he's a well-respected doctor and stuff. I wanted Blake to be at the exact opposite end of the socioeconomic spectrum. So he's kind of this um, scroungy, ruffian, trailer trash guy where even the people who don't know that he's a cannibal still look at him like he's something they scraped off the bottom of their shoe. And there, there were various other ways that I wanted to differentiate him from other characters in the past. But as often happens with a book like this, pretty quickly he started writing the book rather than me. I, I just became an, an observer to, to his sort of process. And of course, the book is written in the first person and his stomach growls a lot, especially when he sees exposed human flesh. Was telling the story in the first person the obvious choice? I read a, a book by Robert Silverberg a few years ago about, um, it was a, a collection of sci-fi stories not written by him, but after each one, there was an essay about how first person seems like the easiest way to tell a story. But there's a tendency for authors, particularly uh, um, beginning authors, to 
spend far too much time in the main character's head when they write in first person. The character tends to think things rather than doing things. So Robert Silverberg actually recommended writing the book in third person and then shifting it to first to kind of avoid that problem. I haven't done that in this case, but part of the fun of reading a book like this is that it's a window into the eye of a madman, a, a head case, you know, and I feel like you don't really get that in third person. I I wanted the, the reader to see the world through the distorted lens that Timothy Blake does, but I was also very conscious of the Robert Silverberg rule. I didn't want to have page after page of him just speculating and imagining and fantasizing and stuff. I wanted to have him go out and do things so as the reader would be always kind of a little bit off balance wondering what he was going to do next. So it took a lot of drafts to get that right. Yeah, you certainly put readers off balance. There's no doubt about that. <laughs> <laughs> and off their lunch, possibly. Definitely, unless they themselves are a cannibal. And then it all sounds very tasty. As if your main character isn't disturbing enough, your book opens with one of the most bizarre scenes I've ever come across in a book. A Chinese astronaut is found dead in a NASA training facility in Houston, Texas. And it looks as if he's fallen directly out of the sky, but no one can really explain how he got there. But solving that problem is not the only thing Blake is up against. Oh, there's so there's a lot of different threads in this book. Besides the fact that he's telling this whole thing from within a, a psychiatric hospital that he's currently being held prisoner in, um, the the dead astronaut, it's uh, he figures out pretty quickly that this person can't possibly have fallen from space because firstly, that's not how space works. If you're in orbit, you tend to stay in orbit and they would have burned up on re-entry and all their bones would be broken. Something else is going on here. But in addition to that, at NASA, where he is investigating, there's a, um, a man named Sam Garcia, who's someone that Blake uh, arrested or rather caught um, quite a long time ago on a kidnapping charge. So Blake thinks, well, if there's this dead astronaut here, and there's a, a convicted kidnapper working for NASA whose whose office is within sight of where the body was found. Something has to be going on, but there's a mysterious woman hanging around and Blake starts to get the feeling that he's being followed by people who might be spies or might be the police. And on top of all that, everyone is on the edge of their seats in town because there's a, um, a serial killer known as the Texas Reaper picking off middle-aged women one by one. So there's a lot of different threads and they they all seem kind of unconnected at the beginning, but I like to think that by the end I've kind of woven them all together so as they um so as you can see that it's all the one story. Timothy Blake at one point is a suspect. Indeed, and not unjustifiably. If um <laughs> any dead bodies who are found and if Timothy Blake is nearby, there's a pretty safe bet that he's involved. Although to be fair, the victims of the Texas Reaper, the bodies were found intact, no bites taken out of them. So in the one sense, Blake can't possibly have done it uh exactly and uh, that reminds me of one of the very early scenes when he just takes a little nibble out of one of the bodies uh, he has a taste for for earlobes <laughs> that's right i think it's very important to show the kind of character that you're dealing with um firstly to show it through their actions like it would be one thing to to begin the story with once upon a time there was a man who was a cannibal but it's much more fun to have him just kind of sneakily bend down and take a bite out of the body and give it a chew and go hmm, hang on a second this is fresh meat this hasn't been frozen by the icy vacuum of space but i think it's also important to kind of 
the reader needs to know what they are in for. There are certainly some readers who will balk at this character and this story, and I figure I have a duty of care to them. They can open the first chapter. The first line is, I eat people. The first thing he does is take a bite out of a dead guy's earlobe. There are some readers who will go, nope, this isn't the book for me, and put it back on the shelf. There will be other readers who go, okay, this is the craziest thing I've ever read. I'm on board. So you got to grab him immediately to make sure that you are winning over exactly the readers who will enjoy the rest of the story. Timothy Blake is so dangerous that he has a CIA handler called Zara. They have an interesting relationship. He's classified as an asset, not of the usual kind. Now, Zara is a very special breed of professional, although she treats him more like a liability than an asset. Is Timothy Blake an asset or a liability? <laughs> um, to himself, he's definitely a liability, but to other people, he's occasionally an asset. So Zara is this kind of um, cold but uh, easily bored, risk-taking CIA agent. Um, whenever I'm trying to develop characters, I often find that difficult, but sometimes the, the thing that, that comes more naturally to me is developing relationships between characters rather than the characters themselves. So what was fun about writing um, Blake's relationship with Zara was that in some ways they're quite similar, like they, they both have a strong stomachs for violence violence, in his case literally, in hers case merely figuratively, um, they both have pretty broad, diverse life experiences that means they know unusual things and they've been in unusual situations. Um, but they're also quite different. Uh, she's sort of a, a cold-blooded killer, whereas he's a, a hot-blooded scavenger. And the, the way they kind of bounce off one another and have senses of humor that overlap but are still different um that was a lot of fun for me to write and i also liked to write the differences between her and blake's um love interest uh reese thistle who has been an fbi agent who he's become fixated on over the last four books in the series um because again in some ways she and zara are similar but in other ways they are different and zara is interested in blake so i was kind of putting together the the world's most twisted love triangle I don't know what shape you call a twisted triangle, a corkscrew, something like that. But anyway, Zara was was um, was a lot of fun to to write. I was trying to lean into some of the tropes, but consciously lean away from others because some of the research that I did suggested that the kind of people who were attracted to spy work in the first place are not the kinds of people that you see doing spy work on TV and in the movies. You're clearly a student of many things, chemistry, technology, psychology, just to name a few. One of the really convincing parts about this book is the detail. I'm glad that I've given you that impression. In truth, because I have been, so I'm 36 now. My first book was published when I was 19. I have had other odd jobs, but not too many of them and not for too long. So I don't have that much life experience to go by, which means that I need to do a lot of research. But even with that, there's there's no substitute for actual expertise. So as soon as I'd finished, a, um, I think the second draft of this book, I started showing it to other people who know more than me, people who know things about medicine, people who know things about espionage, people who know things about space. And um, I'm lucky enough to have 
to have met some generous people over the course of my career. Recently at a writers' festival, I bumped into um, Dr. Richard Harris, uh, who was Australian of the Year a couple of years ago for his work in the Thai cave rescue, and he knew um, some things about uh, blood oxygen levels. That as soon as I heard him start talking, I went, "Oh, this guy knows exactly." knows exactly how to solve the plot problem i'm sure he does that i'm having so i managed to convince him we were on the same shuttle bus at about 5 a.m on a rush to the airport i managed to convince him to uh to read my book he might not have agreed had it not been so early in the morning maybe he hadn't had his coffee yet and wasn't entirely awake but um he very quickly got back to me with an email that said jack you seemed like such a nice fellow love the book though he actually invented a a fictitious technology to make the plot work um uh, something something per fluorocarbon a, a thing that could be injected directly into the vein to to ramp up your blood oxygen levels so i'm i'm very glad that i have such an interesting job and i get to bump into people who know things like that because without it the book wouldn't seem nearly as authentic are you a fan of science fiction Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I've, um, I read across pretty much all genres, but um, I have a particular fondness for sci-fi. Uh, at the moment, I'm reading uh, Provenance by Anne Leckie, which is the, the fourth book sort of of her Imperial Rats trilogy, which is one of those series where I, I often read it with a great deal of enjoyment, but also a, as a good level of professional jealousy, like thinking, oh man, I wish I could create worlds like this. So I may never be the sci-fi writer that I dream of becoming, but I think reading all that sci-fi and getting kind of a, a little window into the future helps me include some sort of near future technologies in my crime fiction without making it feel like a work of science fiction. You you want to be at the cutting edge, but you don't want to fall all the way over over the cliff. That means you end up in a different section of the bookshop, if that makes sense. Are you creating some kind of new genre? And I was trying to invent names for it. Uh, techno-reality fiction, dystopian future reality. Ooh. Technoir. <laughs> I like that. Um, tech noir, maybe something, something like that. But um, I am working on a book at the moment that is explicitly set in the future. I don't know if I'll ever find a publisher for it, but uh, it is a lot of fun to be writing that book and kind of the the technologies that I come across in my research for that are kind of filtering their way into my children's fiction as well. So sometimes it helps to be working on a great number of different projects at once, because if you're having a problem with one of your projects, sometimes uh, you realize that you've already solved it in one of the others, or sometimes you get, you have a problem with one project and you realize that you are having the same one with a different project, but you hadn't noticed, you know. So the more diverse the projects are, the more they can benefit one another, I think. Jack Heath, thank you for joining me on the Good Reading Podcast. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. I've been talking to Jack Heath about his new book, Headcase. It's published by Alan and Unwin, and you can find it at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. My name's Greg Dobbs, and thanks for listening. Subscribe to Good Reading Print and Online Magazine at goodreadingmagazine.com.au.